Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho, and I will be doing neither this morning. I'm here to introduce our guest uh, this morning, uh, and uh, we're so privileged to have such great relationships with uh, many other churches and leaders, both in our own denominational family, the Mennonite Brethren, uh, and beyond. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to get the privilege of introducing a friend, John Howe. John's a pastor at Reality Church uh, in Vancouver, and we're actually doing a little preaching exchange, so I'll be there in two weeks preaching uh, at their congregation. And, uh, and John is a, a wonderful leader in that space. Uh, he uh, took over from their founding pastor. He's bivocational. He's a small business coach. Uh, he and his family live in the Strathcona area in Vancouver. And uh, the things that I love about John is uh, John is just a straight shooter. He will say things as they are and call it how he sees it. And I appreciate that uh, in our relationship and in the way in which John sees the world. I also love how John always points me and others to Jesus and exhibits just a deep sense of love for Jesus. He's a keen thinker uh, and is uh, wonderful in the way in which he can break down complex issues into understandable but not overly simplified ways. And so as we move through this series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we've invited John to come and share with us. So John, thanks for being with us this morning. Welcome. Thanks, Brad. Well, thanks, Brad, and uh, it's great to be here. I, um, I never really know how to introduce myself when people say, introduce yourself, and uh, so it's great that uh, you were able to do that for me. I sometimes feel, if any of you guys have seen the movie Talladega Nights with Ricky Bobby, uh, it's a Will Ferrell movie. I'm not recommending it. I'm just talking about it here, just to be clear. He, uh, when he gets interviewed, he often says, like, I don't know what to do with my hands, and so his hands just go all over the place. And so if I'm forced to, to talk about myself for too long, the same thing tends to happen to me. Um, so thanks for doing that, Brad, and, and great to be here. And, and uh, welcome from, or hello, from our church in Vancouver. I'm pastoring a small church in Vancouver. It's also in the MB conference called Reality Vancouver, and uh, very grateful to be here and great for Brad's friendship as well. So you guys are in a series called The New Exodus, and uh, I want to do, setting up kind of what we're talking about this morning, I want to do three things. The first is I want to just talk about where we are in the story. You know, Ezra Nehemiah is one of those books that, you know, we're not necessarily that familiar with. If I asked half of us to just open a Bible and find out where it is, we might have a bit of a hard time. And uh, so it's, and, and then people are in and out during the summer. And so this, this uh, series has a bit of a flow but I want to get us there together today as we, as we take a look at this passage that we're going to look at. So we're going to talk just about the story of the Bible and where Ezra and Nehemiah fits. And then I'm going to give you a bit of, of my understanding of how the different parts of, of Ezra and Nehemiah fit together. And then we're going to look at our passage, which is Nehemiah 5. So the story of the Bible is that uh, God wants to use people. He's always interested in this, that God is working through people to bless the world. And uh, that's how the story starts. But of course, the people fail. They're not able to be used by God in the way that he wants. But God doesn't give up. A very important part of the story, that God is always using people. That's, he's committed to this. This is plan A, B, and C for God. If I was God, I would have tried monkeys, rocks, something else. But he just seems unbelievably committed to using people. And so he chooses this family of people in the world. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to dwell among you in order that you will be a blessing to the rest of the world, that people will know me 
as I dwell amongst you, as you become like me, you will shine my goodness and my face and my blessing out, my shalom out into the rest of the world. And so this group of people, they, they've had successes and failures in the story of the Bible. So they've, they've had some great times, but they've also had some really difficult times, times where they haven't uh, lived as this blessing to be a, a, to, or blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And we're coming in to this story, Ezra and Nehemiah, during one of those times. So the people of God have not been acting faithfully, and so they've been sent out into exile. Another nation has come, and they've conquered the group of of, uh, Jews living in Jerusalem, and they've taken them to exile, which means they've transported them out of the city, and now they're living in another nation. And, And the part where we're getting to in our story, Ezra and Nehemiah, is now they're coming back. They're coming back to the city of Jerusalem and it, it forces us to ask the question, and then I think Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to ask the question, what do you do as you come back and you reform as the people of God? It's a new situation. It's slightly different than the things that they've had in the past, the situations that they've faced in the past. How do we reform as the people of God? What do we do as we come back into the land? And to my eye, there are kind of three general movements that we see in these two books together, three kind of questions that they're asking. And so the first three groups, or first group of leaders has three people in it, Sheshbazar, Zerubbabel, and Yeshua. By the way, this is a total sidebar, but if you are expecting uh, a child and you want a unique baby name, I cannot more highly recommend any book of the Bible than Ezra and Nehemiah. There are some unbelievably unique names. Like my name is John, my wife's name is Sarah. It's like the most white bread normal names. You probably know a couple named John and Sarah, um, but uh, the kids in my school or my kids' school, none of them have the same name. It's like Arbutus and like Sunshine and these kinds of names. So I think people are looking for very unique names. If that's you, I, I recommend this book to you. I hope that if I come back next year, uh, we'll meet some, you know, Shesh Bazaar weebs and uh, Zerubbabel Wongs up in here. Um, I don't know after that joke if I get invited back. But, okay, so they, they, these three guys, they go, and their, their focus is rebuilding the temple. It's the places of worship and the, and the habits of worship. So they talk a lot about the Sabbath, for example. How are we going to counterform against the different uh, narratives that we have running in our mind and the different narratives that are happening in our city and in our world that we're used to and coming out of exile. And so they focus on this question, how are we going to worship together? What are going to be our counterformational practices that point us to the good, the good life as proposed by our God? And every generation has to do this. This is the same thing that we have today. We have to ask this question for ourselves. How, you know, the entire world is, is forming us in a certain direction. It's shaping our hearts to love and to be lovers and to worship. Everything is doing this. This morning before the service, we prayed through the newspaper. Everything in the newspaper is, is, is asking us to worship, to focus our attention on certain things, on certain places. And this is a time where we come together and we ask about how do we counterform against that? How do we, instead of having our hearts point just a few inches off, how do we point our hearts towards God's vision of the good life? In our community, we, we talk about this as a rule of life, the habits and the practices that we have that help form us into God's vision of who he's calling us to be and what it means to be human. And every generation has to do this. Every one of us has to do this as we live in this new moment in time, as we're kind of coming back and forming and reforming as the people of God. So that's the first movement. The second movement is led by a guy named Ezra, and his name is right on the book. And one of the things that he does is he asks the question of how do we take this story, these stories that we have, the scripture that we have, and how do we live appropriately in our day and age? 
because they're in a new situation, and you guys are calling this series the New Exodus. And so he has this old story to draw on, this old Exodus that's happened, but the situation that Ezra finds himself in is slightly different, isn't it? It's not exactly the same. It's not a one-to-one. And so they have to ask different kinds of questions. How do we take this old story of this Exodus and this God who's been at work since the beginning of time, and how do we understand that today, in this moment, in Jerusalem right now? And again, that's the same thing that we have to do. We have this book. We call it the Bible. And it has all of these 2,000-year-old stories in it. They aren't one-to-one. When you go home, you're not going to be facing the same thing that Ezra and Nehemiah are facing. But as a community and a group of people, we have to ask this question for ourselves as well. How do we take this story and understand it in our moment, in our day, to live wisely as God's people? So that's the second movement. And then the third movement is, comes from this guy, Nehemiah, and he's focused on rebuilding the city, especially the walls. And so I would interpret it this way. He's kind of asking the question of how do we create? How do we live in the world? How do we work? How do we understand our work and architect a space that allows for this this story of shalom, this this vision for us to be a blessing or to be blessed and then in order to bless the world? How do we create space for that amongst God's people? And and specifically the passage that we're going to be looking at, uh, Nehemiah 5, is asking how do we live as, as God's people? What is the character that we're to have as God's people? How can we shine him out in this complicated and ambiguous world. So with that said, um, well, I'll say this. If you're a note taker, Nehemiah, I think, gives us in this passage four different ways, four different ways that we're going to see that he, in amazingly and beautiful uh, example, as an amazing beautiful example, he showcases the character of God. So there's going to be four of them. So let's, let's get started in reading together. Jeremiah, or sorry, Nehemiah 5, um, and we're starting in verse 1. You guys read NLT, right? Is that right here? Okay. So that's what I have up on the screen. That's what I have here with me. So we're going to read through the first few verses. It says this, About this time some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against the fellow Jews. They were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. And others said, we've mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we're helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. So a bit of context for what's happening here. We have to remind ourselves that the, the Jewish people, they are a conquered nation. And so they're what politically we call a vassal state, which means that there is a ruling nation over them, the Babylonians, and they are underneath. And so as they go back into the land, back into Jerusalem, they aren't able to make all their own decisions. And they're only able to go because they are willing to, to send this tax back to King Artaxerxes. And this tax that they have to pay is creating a huge economic burden on them. This is very similar to what we see in the Gospels. If you want to understand the context of the Gospels and why tax collectors are such uh, hated people, it's because of this. They're they're the people who are uh, taking this tax from their people and putting an economic burden on them. And so King Artaxerxes puts this tax on the Jewish people. But on top of that, this tax is such a heavy burden that people going through this famine are having to mortgage their their, uh, houses sell their vineyards, and even in some cases sell their kids to fellow Jewish people who are taking interest from them. So this is the situation. So what does Nehemiah do? This is a key verse for us, verse 6. He says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. So here we get our first two ways that Nehemiah shows us the character of God. The first way is that he listens. 
Nehemiah listens to the cry of the people. And I want to point out that this is deep listening. This is true listening. This is not what I do often with my wife, where she's talking to me, and I'm like looking, and I'm nodding, and she's telling me something very important, but I'm actually thinking, you know, I wonder how the Edmonton Oilers are actually going to fit everybody under the salary cap this year. And I'm not actually paying attention to what she's saying. Or I had an experience with my son where he did this with me. He asked me, uh, you know, my son's 11, and uh, he, asks, he likes to ask these important questions right before he goes to bed. And uh, so he said to me, we're just, you know, lying in bed, and I'm praying for him, and he, he looks at me and he goes, Dad, what happens to people when they die? And I'm like, here it is. This is the moment you've been training for as a pastor. I'm like, okay. So I gave him what I thought was a really good answer. It wasn't too long. I thought it met him where he was at, and he was staring at me straight in the eyes. And I was like, so what do you think about that, buddy? And he looks at me, and he goes, hey, Dad, you know that Mr. Beast on YouTube? He gave away a private island to somebody yesterday. And I was like, okay, you weren't listening at all. It looked like you were for a minute, but you actually, your mind was in a completely different place. That's not what's happening here. This is what my kids learn in school as like full body listening. Nehemiah is engaged. He's listening to what's happening with these people. He's listening to their concerns. He's processing it. And emotionally, he's 100% there. So Nehemiah is listening. And the second way in this passage that Nehemiah showcases the character of God for us is that he identifies and takes up the case of the poor and the exploited. Now let's pause here for a moment. Why did Nehemiah have these reactions? Well, maybe it's just because he's a really good guy. It would be quite, he would be quite the good guy in my experience if he's going to be like a full, engaged, full-body listener. If you're single here and you're a woman, you might be like, look, if you know any Nehemiahs who are going to lean in like that, if you could just introduce me after, that'd be great. So maybe it's a nice guy, and that's possible, but that, that is not uh, the way that the, the Hebrew scriptures work. The Hebrew scriptures are like this. They're always referring back to previous stories. And in our Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah comes in the middle of the Old Testament, but originally in the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew scrolls, it was right at the end. And so what it's doing is it's referring back to all these previous stories to help us understand what's going on in this story. And that's, like, that's why it's called the New Exodus. It's referring back to this old story of the Exodus. And it's saying, if you want to understand what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah, you want to get your expectations right, you have to refer back to something, a different story something that the Hebrew people would be very familiar with. And we do this in our everyday life, too. We refer to other things to help people understand what we're talking about, right? Uh, We took our kids, for example, to Disneyland, and I realized I I grew up in, in like, the 90s, and so we would have DVDs and VHSs. And every time when we would watch a Disney DVD or VHS, we would have, you know, that that two-minute clip at the beginning where it's like, this is Disneyland. So I have a very well-formed idea of what it was growing up. My kids didn't grow up in that. They have no clue what Disneyland is. So I was like, we're going to Disneyland. They're like, okay, cool. Like, I don't understand. So I'm trying to help them understand, like, what have you experienced that's like Disneyland? So I was like, Disneyland is like the peony on steroids. And they're like, oh, we get the peony. What's steroids? And I was like, okay, never mind. It's like, it's like the peony times like 100, okay? This is where we're going. And they're like, oh, okay, I think I can start to get what this looks like, right? Or, you know, we, we do this with people too. My friends, they often refer to me if they're like, oh, do you know John Howe? He's like the vaguely Asian, much better looking version of Ryan Reynolds, right? <laughs> As you laugh, you can tell that's not, that, that is not how they refer to me. The referent has to make sense, right? But if you guys want to start that, by the way, if you want to start this rumor that that's what I look like, I, I'd appreciate it if it, if, it, if it happens from here. 
But this is how we make sense of things and how we make sense of people. We refer back. And, and Nehemiah's reactions are supposed to ask, get us to ask this question, what is he referring back to? And maybe more importantly, who is he referring back to? Have we seen another character in the story that looks like this? And we, we should understand, if we're very familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, that this is both of these reactions, both listening and identifying with the poor, are, are identifying or referring back to the character of God. This is who he is in the Bible. And the Bible is littered with stories of God listening, full-body listening. Let me just give you a couple examples from the Psalms. Psalm 18.6, it says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to God for help. I, he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his, his ears. Excuse me. And then Psalm 34, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Our God is a God who listens, and so Nehemiah is embodying his character. And specifically in the Hebrew scriptures, it seems like there are certain groups of people that God bends his ear towards and listens to. Let me give you a couple more examples from the psalm. Psalm 72, he will deliver the needy who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. Psalm 82, God defends the cause of the weak and the fatherless and upholds the rights of the afflicted and the oppressed. And the Bible is really clear that God, God loves everybody. But if you read the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll see that there's a certain group of people that he gives almost preferential treatment to, that he bends his ear towards. And theologian Nicholas Volderstorff calls this the a quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. There's four groups of people that God bends his ear towards. It's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the poor, and the immigrant. These groups of people seem to have God's ear more than any other. And Nehemiah is giving us a beautiful picture of what our God looks like in a human form, what it means to be human, which from the whole Hebrew Scriptures and the whole Bible, what it means to be human is to reflect this character of our God into the world. And so Nehemiah is that person. He listens, and he takes up identifying with the poor in this story. Now, let me ask you, uh, let's just do a thought experiment here. I, I want to imagine that after the service, I give you guys a question, and I say, I want you to go out onto 200th, or Willow, is it Willow Brook Mall? Willow, Willow Bees? Willow Brook. Willow Brook. Okay, Willow Bees is the kid's show, I think. Willow Brook. So I ask you, just go to Willow Brook Mall and just ask a stranger this question. Say, if you were going to say, if you think of the God of the Bible, give me two characteristics that you think of when you think of the God of the Bible. I will bet you $100 that nobody will say, oh, when I think of the God of the Bible, I think of a God who listens, and I think of a God who cares for the poor. And if you had time, and you were able to ask them another question, and you asked them this, when you think of Christians, what are the first two adjectives that come to mind when you think of them? I would bet you $200 that nobody would say, Christians, oh, they're such good listeners and they care so deeply and sacrificially about the poor. Now, why? Why aren't we the same? Why, why aren't we having the same heart as Nehemiah, that these are the people that we're known for, or this, these are the characteristics that we're, we're known for? Well, you know, A.W. Tozer has this great saying. He says, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It runs your life. And so what comes to mind when we think about God? What's the first thing? And I'm not asking you to give a Sunday school answer. I'm talking about what, what truly comes to your mind and your heart 
What runs your life? Is, is God like an angry judge? Is that the first picture that comes to your mind? Or maybe he's like a very disappointed grandfather. Or maybe he's like this senile old person that's not really interested and just wants you to live your life and is deeply unconcerned with the plight of the poor and the vulnerable in our world and in our cities. What matter, it matters what we think about when we think about God. And for Nehemiah, he understands from the story that this is who God is. God is a good listener, and God cares about the poor. And here's why it really, really matters. Because what we think about when we think about God, that first thing is going to shine through our lives, into the lives of our friends, our families, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers. That's going to shine out from us. You know, one of the most crazy statements in the Old Testament is that God says to the Israelite people, and so by extension to us, he says, I, I want you to carry my name. I'm going to give my name to you. The people are going to know me as they know you. And there's moments where the Israelite people do amazingly well and they showcase the character of God, but then there's other moments where they drag God's name through the mud and people's vision of who the God of Israel is is off because they don't showcase God's name well. And the same offer is made to us. There's a lot of hand-wringing about how people view God and view Christians in the world, but the Old Testament is actually really clear. That's a reflection on us as the people of God who we think God is, and how that goes through our lives. So these are the first two characteristics. Let's move on to the, to the next one. Verse 7. So Nehemiah identifies, listens and identifies with the poor, and then he says, After thinking it over, I spoke out against these nobles and officials, these people who were charging interest. So I told them, you're hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. And at the meeting, I said to them, We're all, we are doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who, we've had to sell, who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you're selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. So I pressed further. What you're doing is not right. You should not walk. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore the fields, the vineyards, the olive groves, and homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Here we see the third way that Nehemiah showcases the character of God for us is that he pursues justice for the poor. So not only does he listen and identify, but he pursues justice. And he does it, it's a master class here, and I don't have time to say everything about it, but one of the things that he does here is Nehemiah has a much bigger vision of sin than most of us do. He has a much bigger vision of sin and its effects in the world than those of us do. So let me just try to quickly give you what I think he's doing. So when I think of how the Bible talks about sin, I, I think about it in this way, in these layers. So there's like at least five layers of sin in the world. So we've got personal sin, and we've got community sin, we've got cultural sin, and we've got just general brokenness in the world, and then we've got powers and principalities. And the Bible talks about all of these different ways. So let me just give you an example of how we might think about being poor in the world. So we might think about it in personal way. So for example, someone might be poor because they made bad choices, they gambled away all of their money. But there also are communal reasons oftentimes to why people are poor. I live in the downtown east side, and uh, there's a lot of people that I've met in the neighborhood, and they like to play scratchers. 
These are these little, uh, you know, these little cards that you scratch off. I'm sure none of you are familiar with them. Um, but that's, they, they play them oftentimes, even though they don't have much money. And one of the reasons that they play for them is because what was modeled to them and what their parents oftentimes, some of the best moments they had when they bring these scratchers home. And they would sit down and all of the chaos of their lives for one moment was stopped. And they would get to, with hope and joy, scratch these tickets off with their parents. And they want to relive that moment. That that's, was their upbringing. And that severely affects them. You know, some of them have FASD. They can't put together, they can't understand cause and effect in the same way that, that people who don't have. And so they have this communal levels of sin. But then there's also cultural levels of sin. In B.C., the Gaming Commission is owned by our government. We benefit as people every time someone gambles. And so there's cultural levels of sin. And then there's this general brokenness. People are going to gamble, for example, because they're looking for something. I want something. I want some sort of hope. And then there's the powers and principalities that the Bible talks about. There's these dark forces at work within our world to keep us, the Bible says, enslaved. Again, building off of this Exodus language. Now, here's what I'm, what I'm trying to say about this. Each of us, based on our upbringing and our lives, we have various levels that we prioritize. And we say, this is the true locus of sin in the world. And there's a lot of Christians, especially when it comes to poverty, that break down uh, poverty into personal sin and brokenness. So we'll say something like this. People are poor because they make bad choices, and just there's a general brokenness in the world. And those things are true in the Bible, but they're not the full picture and the full story. And we need to look here at what Nehemiah says, because he has a very nuanced and at the same time a huge vision of what sin does in the world. And so he doesn't blame poor people. There's no uh, retort back to the poor people. Just work harder. Why don't you make better choices? That might, might be what I expect him to say. That's not what he says at all. He doesn't talk to them. Here's what Tim Keller says about just poverty in general in the Old Testament. He says, if you read the over 200 references in the Old Testament about poverty, 80 to 90% of the references to the poor do not say that mainly if you want to understand poverty, you have to see it as if you had the goods, you had the things the world values, and you lost them through irresponsible behavior. 80 to 90% of the references in the Old Testament don't say that. The Bible does not condone irresponsible behavior, but by and large, it sees the frequent irresponsible behavior as a response to poverty rather than as the cause. It's shocking to me. Nehemiah doesn't point his finger at the poor people. He also doesn't point his finger at King Artaxerxes, this outsider to the community of God, and say, you know the reason why these people are poor? Your tax. Your tax is the problem. No, instead, he talks to those within the community of God those at the cultural level of sin, and he says, we're benefiting from the poor. The biblical word here is exploiting. You're exploiting the poor, he says. And we may think, boy, these guys are just charging interest. Like, interest is just normal. That's just part of our life. Some of you might even do that for your jobs, and you might think, like, oh, boy, what is he saying here? And we would think it's not that big of a deal, and it's true. For them, it wasn't. This is just common practice back then like it was now. But Nehemiah is saying, in the people of God, in the culture of the people of God, we need to look different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world may go and charge interest. That may just be normal practice. King Artaxerxes may charge us a tax as a vassal uh, community. But in the family of God, we treat our brothers and sisters differently. We don't march along to the, the beat of the rest of the world. 
And he's also saying something really, really important. It's not just those people, the poor people, that are in trouble. It's not just these people who are charging interest. He says, it's me. It's me. As a person with land, he says in this passage, I'm not going to charge interest either. And I point this out because it may become as quite a surprise to us. And you may feel uneasy with this definition of, of sin. And you might say, but this guy, he comes in from Vancouver and he's just spouting all these liberal ideas here out in the valley. I like to say I did not choose this passage. The passage chose me, okay? I'm just, uh, I'm just saying what it says. But I encourage us that we have to, some of you may say, I don't want to lose this vision of personal responsibility, and I don't want you to either. The Bible talks about that, but it invites us, this passage, to enlarge our vision of what sin is in the world and its effects. It is this huge, huge dark force that affects absolutely everything. And Nehemiah asks us to enlarge our picture and see it from God's perspective. So Nehemiah shows us God's character in these three ways. He listens, he identifies, and then he also pursues justice on behalf of the poor. Let's look at the last passage for our final characteristic of God. It says, For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah from the, 12th, or the 20th year to the 32nd year in the reign of King Artaxerxes, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. And even their assistance took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act in that way. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refusing, refused to acquire any land, and I required all my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other lands." Nehemiah here shows us the last one, which is that he actually not only listened to the poor, identified with them, and pursued justice for them, but he actually became one of them himself. He became poor. And, and this, Nehemiah's case is super interesting because he is a governor. He should deserve to have all of this different food. He could be living at the absolute highest level, at the 1% in Jerusalem, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. There'd be nothing wrong with that. That's what he deserves. In our language today, he might say, like, that's my right. That's what I've worked for. And, and Nehemiah has already sacrificed for this position. His family has been put in exile. He was the cupbearer to the king. We have no clue how, how many things his family must have sacrificed to get him to that place of being the cupbearer. You know, the cupbearer, part of their job was to taste the wine before the king did because the king was so often uh, poisoned. I had the privilege of being in China at the Forbidden City, and we were doing a tour, and it was just like, this is where Emperor uh, Zhang lived, and then he also died, and he was poisoned right here. And then it's like, you take 10 steps later, and it's like, this is where Emperor Zhang was, and then he was poisoned by his concubine. And it's like every five steps, by the end of the tour, we're like, they're like, this is where Emperor so-and-so died, and then we'd be like, was he poisoned? They're like, yes, he was. How did you know? It's like, this was a real thing. This was a real problem back in the day. Every day, Nehemiah is taking his life in his hands by drinking the wine for the, the King Artaxerxes. He's sacrificed so much. He's, he's come in front of King Artaxerxes sad at the beginning of, of Nehemiah 1. The king could kill him for that. He's asked him for things. The king could kill him for that. He's made this arduous journey all the way back. He sacrificed so much. And he could so easily say, as many of us do, oh, I've, I've already sacrificed I've sacrificed. I remember that, being back in college when I was only eating craft dinner. I remember those moments. Why, why would I have to sacrifice now? Why become poor? 
You know, and I think uh, it, when we, we listen or we see Nehemiah's story and him just continually taking this path down to become a, a person of sacrifice, to identify with the poor and become like the poor, it challenges us very deeply because our world as Western Christians is completely the opposite. Everything in our world encourages us to go in exactly the other direction. Let me try to use a graphic to describe this. I think our vision of the good life is kind of this trajectory. It's up and, up and to the right. My life is about making gains. My life is about getting better. A sociologist that I read, he says our lives in the West are characterized, he calls it the AAA life, making life available, accessible, attainable. More and more available, accessible, attainable for us and for our kids. And I'll say this, if you're from an immigrant family, which at some point most of us in this room were, very recently or a long time ago, this is the story of our families. My, my dad is an immigrant from Hong Kong, and um, uh, this is the story of our family, that we came here for a better life. The rapper Drake has a song called Started From The Bottom, and the lyrics go, started from the bottom, now we're here, started from the bottom, now the whole team's here. It sounds like a little bit better when he raps it than how I'm doing it here. I, I've emailed him. He hasn't emailed me back, but I'm pretty sure this is a song about immigrants, okay? This is our story. We started from the bottom. Now we want to be here. And commentator Michael Wilcox, he says this, what we want is not necessarily like the, the ambitious life. He says, what do we want? If we're ambitious, maybe we want power, wealth, and unbridled self-indulgence. We want to be like right at the top of that arrow, and most of us would say, no, 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 that's not our life. You know, we're not, we're humble Canadians. We're not Americans. We don't need uh, to be right at the top of the arrow here. What we want is just a, a moderate life. If we're modest, it's this, security, comfort, reasonable enjoyment. And I call this the great Canadian middle-class dream. And I want to say this, if you're middle-class in this room, and I imagine many of us are, I'm not trying to say middle-class people are wrong, but I'm saying that this dream, that this is the good life, runs our lives. And so what happens is when we meet our God, we shoehorn him into this story. And our God can only help us if he helps us gain this story, helps us move towards this dream. If he blesses us, this is our vision of blessing. And our vision of sacrifice then also stands in this same line, that I'll only sacrifice what doesn't cost me this middle-class dream. So when I give, I'll give. Yeah, as a Christian, of course, I understand that it's give, but I'm only going to give out of the extra that I have, out of the little bit extra that I have. And Jesus is like a booster rocket that helps me in my life to achieve this middle-class dream. And, and when I serve, for example, sacrificially, my, my, I'm going to serve in only in a way that doesn't hurt my schedule. It might minorly inconvenience me, but if, it's, if it threatens anything in this vision of the middle-class dream, I'm not going to do it. Or, you know, I minister in Vancouver, and a lot of people, I would say, this is their story. You know, I'm, if I'm in my early 20s, uh, my hormones are running wild, I'll walk away from faith because it costs me too much. But I'll come back when I'm in my 30s or 40s and I have kids, my hormones have died down. Because then I'm back to the middle class dream. And the church facilitates moving into the middle class dream. But what happens is when we read Nehemiah, we see him saying, in order to live for the kingdom, in order to live in line with God, I won't live up to what I deserve. My life is not about pursuing this path of up and to the right anymore. That's not the story that I'm living by. Instead, I let go of my rights. I lay down this vision that I have for the good life, and I sacrifice for the kingdom of God. I move in absolutely the other direction. In line with the poor, I become poor. And some of us, we just don't even have a category for this. It's not the way that we think. 
And here's what uh, Michael Wilcox says in his, in his quote. He says, here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our hearts. Our hearts are pointed at a different vision of the good life. And, and the Jesus we worship ends up being more of a creation of our culture rather than anything like the God of the Bible. So what do we do? How do we change? How might we become people that are more like Nehemiah in our world, who identify with the poor and are able to sacrifice, live sacrificially for the kingdom of God? How did Nehemiah do it? Well, he did a couple things. He had a very clear vision of who God was, and he had awareness that God had acted on behalf of his people, and then finally he had a willingness to walk in the same path and embody that God. He knew who God was, He understood that God had acted on behalf of his people, and he said, I'm willing to pursue the same path. And thankfully, we have exactly the same story in the person of Jesus. I think there's no better place that this is written very quickly than in Philippians 2. Let me just read it for us. It says, Jesus Christ, though he was God, though he was God, many commentators would say that this word though could mean three different things in the original Greek. And we often translate it, though he was God. So even though he was God, he let go of everything. He kind of acted out of character with God. But other commentators would say that this word could be translated because. Jesus Christ, because he was God. Because he was God, he let go. Because this is who our God is. Our God is a God who identifies with the poor and becomes poor himself, as we'll see. Our God because he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling on to. He didn't pursue the path of up and to the right. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This life of Jesus, as we'll see in this next slide here, is is moving in exactly the opposite direction. It's headed towards the cross. It's a life of sacrifice. And if I asked you here today, why did Jesus die? Probably many of us would say, Jesus died for my sins. And and there's a true answer to there, and there's a thread that we can pull from the very beginning of the story up into the point of Jesus. But this passage points out something slightly different for us. Why did Jesus die? He came to show us what God really looks like. That our God is a God who moves towards the poor towards the vulnerable, towards the marginalized. This is the kind of God that we have, that we see in the person of Jesus. Our God is a God who gives himself. Our God is a God who is not a stranger or distant to those who are vulnerable. Our God is a God who goes right there, even to the point of death. And this passage continues. It says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this passage gives us this new perspective on what it means to be human and the pattern of life that we are to follow if we're going to follow our God. The pattern that's in the scriptures, the pattern that Nehemiah sees, the pattern that Jesus Christ invites us into. It's this pattern of life. It's not pursuing the up and to the right vision, but rather the pattern of dying and rising, the pattern of the life of Christ, that we go into these moments of sacrifice and we come out as new people, identified with our risen Savior, Jesus, who is reigning and ruling and bearing his name. Rather than trying to maintain the great Canadian middle-class dream, 
that God invites us into this pattern of dying and rising. Amen. And Philippians 2.5, it starts with this passage. It says this, cultivate this mindset in your community, which is, in essence, the community of Jesus Christ. This pattern of dying and rising. Jericho, I, I don't know you well, but I just, so I'm just posing the question. This is not an accusation. Is this the mentality of you? Again, our culture encourages us with everything it has up and to the right. But Jesus, his humble life, both shown in Nehemiah and in this passage, articulates a different vision for what it means to be human. The pattern of dying and rising. Is this your mentality? Do you want to look like Jesus? Or have we become so conformed to the world that we don't look any different? I'm going to close in prayer here, but I'm going to just give you one last plea from where I live and minister. You know, I've been ministering in Vancouver now for about 15 years. And uh, one of the most, uh, the, the groups of people that I see the most are people that, your kids, who move in from the valley and come to Vancouver. And I've had the privilege of, of meeting a lot of them. And one of the reasons that, uh, one of the things that they say is that I walked away from faith. I had faith, you know, especially if they're from Abbotsford. Um, you know, I grew up in a family of faith. And, uh, but now I'm walking away. I'm trying to find my own path. And one of the reasons that they do is because Christianity offers nothing different. Our Jesus is just another helper. He's a little rocket booster to get us to the middle class life. And they say, "Ah, I don't need that. I don't want that. And so I just plead along with you after meeting many, many of these kids that so many of them are looking for a different life. They're not rejecting Jesus. They're just rejecting this kind of Jesus who gives us a little push, a little help into the life that their parents have. What would it look like for you, for us, for our kids, for our family, for our friends if we lived in a completely different way? Might you have something different to say to your friends and your families rather than Jesus is here to help you that our lives are characterized by Jesus invites me to come and die? that I might rise and find that I can truly live. What if our lives were characterized by that? Let me pray and close for us. God, this is a challenging passage. I say that about myself, too, that it's a challenge to me, and uh, I hope it's a, a challenge to each of us. And I just pray for even any guilt or shame that may come from this. That's not where I'm trying to go. We just pray for your Holy Spirit. The conviction of your Holy Spirit and just this invitation to this different kind of life. I think of the words of Jesus, just pick up your cross and follow me. And I confess in my own life, and for, I know for us as the Western Church that we have so often denied that claim. And it's come at the detriment of our own faith journeys and even the vision of what it means to be human and what you have on offer. And so I pray by your grace that you would calibrate us instead to your vision of what it means to be human and the hope that you offer that you don't hate our middle-class dreams, you don't hate people who are middle-class, but you just look at us and you say, it's too small. It's too small for what you've created us to be, which is people that in some amazing way can actually reflect the glory of the living God. And so I ask for that for each one of us. I ask that for myself, that we would let go of the ways that we just put our death grip on that middle-class dream, and instead we would release and we would find ourselves um, just living in the pattern of your life, that we would see what you have done 
that you have done it on our behalf and that we would take the same pattern of dying and rising. And I pray this over my life and my church, but also over Jericho as well. As we do this, may your glory shine. May people come to see that you are a different God who's offering something very, very different, a different vision of the kingdom and a different vision of the life. So as we respond now in giving, as we respond now in prayer, as we respond in singing, would, we war- would you warm our hearts to who you are and what you've done for us? We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen. I think we're going to respond in singing now, but uh, there's also going to be some prayer, I think, happening at the back. If there's people uh, that would like prayer, we invite you to come and receive that with the folks at the back.